Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, hey, welcome to Liquid Church, everybody. Glad you're here for our new series, Crosswalk. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we need to give a big welcome. We have a lot of campuses who are joining us all around New Jersey. Would you welcome them? And all of you joining us at Church Online. Thrilled that you guys are with us today, too. Crosswalk, what we're going to do is we're going to join Jesus on his journey to the cross in these weeks leading up to Easter. Right now, we're kind of in the Lenten season where we, we remember the passion of Christ and what all that means. Um, and for that, our team actually went to New York City uh, last week to shoot that video you just watched. And it was amazing to see people's reactions to this giant 10-foot cross, you know, being walked through the streets of New York. We went from Manhattan. We walked through, you know, Times Square. Uh, our team went all the way up to the skyline, uh, down to Wall Street, and uh, people's reaction were kind of telling. Honestly, most New Yorkers were completely indifferent. You know, they didn't seem to notice or care. It's like, it's New York. This is not the weirdest thing we'll see all day, right? It's like, it's the naked cowboy carrying the cross, different story, you know? Uh, the other reaction was sort of strange to me. Several people stopped us to take selfies with the cross, you know? It's kind of like that weird moment, like a symbol of sacrifice and narcissism. Click. Uh, it's New York, right? Uh, but we wanted to go to the city uh, because Jesus really, he walked his cross through the biggest city of his day, and that was the city of Jerusalem. The events of the Passion took place in Jerusalem during the Jewish festival known as Passover. And the events of, Passion, uh, of the Passover were really, this is the, the Jewish celebration where they celebrate the Israelites' uh, liberation from Egypt, right? We just kind of studied about Egypt, about how the Israelites were taken out of slavery. And to free his people, God sent 10 plagues on the Egyptian uh, firstborn. That was the, the, actually the 10th uh, plague. That was the worst and most horrific thing. And the Israelites were told, hey, mark the doorposts of your house with the blood of a sacrificial lamb so that the spirit of the Lord would watch pass over the Hebrew homes. That's how it came to be known as Passover. And so every year, Jewish families from all around the Roman world, they would come and journey to Jerusalem, and that city would swell. I mean, wall-to-wall people, thousands of Passover pilgrims. I want you to imagine like Times Square uh, on New Year's Eve or like New Orleans at Mardi Gras. That's what it was like. And the crowds in Jerusalem included Jesus and his disciples or followers who journeyed to the city for Passover. Here's what Mark 10 says. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were what? Afraid. Now, why was that? We'll find out. Uh, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will, and you know what we'll do today? Whenever you see something in yellow, let's read it out loud together. Ready? They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles or the Romans, the non-Jews, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus is preparing his followers for what's going to go down the city. And he kind of makes this upsetting prediction. He says, guys, when we get there, uh, the Jewish leaders who are very jealous, they are going to put me on trial. They're going to condemn me to death and get ready. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be lashed 39 times. I'm going to be, my beard's going to be pulled out. I'm going to be spit on, beaten, and murdered. And that's why his followers are afraid. 
Starting in Mark chapter 8, Jesus predicts his death three times in three chapters as a way of saying, this is why I came to earth. If you know nothing else about Christianity, Jesus is saying my death on a Roman cross is central to my purpose and mission. And that is to die for sin and suffer as a substitute. That's why I came. So this is the start of Jesus' Passion Week. Now, you hear that word passion, and right, as Americans or Westerners, we think passion, romance, you know, passion. Like, you know, that's not what it means. The Latin for passion, does anybody know what it means? Suffering. Suffering. The passion of Jesus is basically the short period of suffering that begins with his entrance to Jerusalem, his arrest and trial, and then leads to his crucifixion on Good Friday, which is the central event of Christianity. Jesus says, hey, three days after that, I'm going to rise. And he's pointing to the resurrection of Easter. But understand, nobody gets him at this point. (laughs) None of the disciples understand what he's talking about. All they know at this moment is that something bad is going to go down in Jerusalem. And this begins his crosswalk from the upper room to the empty tomb. That's what we're going to do for the next few weeks leading up to Easter. We're going to join Jesus on his crosswalk and focus exclusively on only two chapters in the Bible. The Gospel of Mark, or the eyewitness account of Mark, and chapters 14 or 15, which record these key events in Jesus' passion, his walk to the cross. And you're going to look at these in your life groups during the week and get into this. What we'll do is we're going to walk from the Garden of Gethsemane, that's actually today, to the courtyard of Caiaphas next week, to the palace of Pilate where he gets involved in politics. What does Jesus have to say about politics? And arrive at the empty tomb on Easter. Those are kind of the steps that Jesus walked that we're going to follow in leading up to Easter. Does that make sense? Nod your head if you're with me, all right? All right, so let's open our Bible to Mark chapter 14. We'll take our first step on Jesus' uh, walk to the cross, and we're going to start here at verse 32. We also put this in your notes. Here's what it says. They went to a place called, can we say this together? Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John. So out of his 12 disciples, he had three who were really close. Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. (laughs) Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. That's where we get that phrase from. Once more, he went away, and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping second time because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Yeah, I would think so. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And he's referring to Judas, who betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And this begins the final 12 hours of Jesus's life. And uh, obviously, it's a pretty heavy account, pretty somber, but there is some humor in it. You can, you know, Jesus senses the weight of what's laying before him, and he goes to Gethsemane, which is this garden, to pray. And he says to his disciples, hey, can you guys stay awake with me? But what happens? Yeah, sure. 
right? Now, be honest. Honest moment. Have you ever fallen asleep while praying? Just can you be honest here? Okay. Thank you for your honesty. The rest of you are lying. Okay, I get that. All right. It's kind of funny. On uh, this past week, I was studying this passage during the day, and then on Tuesday night, my daughter, uh, Chase, had to practice a speech for, for middle school, and it's like 9.30, and so my wife, Colleen, we're getting like ready for bed, and she comes into our bedroom, and she opens up her Chromebook, and she says, i got to practice my speech, and she gets her PowerPoint ready, and so we're like, oh, okay, cool. We'll just, you know, lay down here and watch, you know? You know what happens, right? She's like, so in 1700, and I'm like, <laughs> and I only woke up because she goes, Dad! You know, Dad, are you sleeping? I'm like, no, no, no. You need to use more inflection. I don't know. It's embarrassing, right? Parenting fail. Uh, that's how the disciples must have felt. Jesus is like, guys, I'm about to go through the most painful experience of my life, and I need your support. Can, can you just keep watch for an hour? Doesn't happen once, twice. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him, right? And then it happens again, of course, in verse 41. It's embarrassing. It just shows how alone Jesus was at this very first step on his crosswalk. Now, if you have ever felt alone or you have faced like a a, a challenging situation, there are really four big ideas we can glean from Gethsemane. If you're taking notes, I outlined it this way. If you want to fill in the blanks in your notes, we're going to talk about the history of Gethsemane. Why should we even believe this account of the Bible? Why even believe the Bible? How do we know this is true? You know, history is written by the winners. How do I, maybe you're an atheist or an agnostic and you're like doubting. Awesome, glad you're here today. We'll talk about the history of Gethsemane. Second, the humanity of Jesus, because we see actually Jesus up close in this vulnerable moment. The horror of the cup. What is this cup? He says, take this cup from me. And then the hope that we have because of what happens in Gethsemane. So we're going to look at the history, the humanity, the horror of the cup, and then the hope of Gethsemane. But we'll start first with the history of of Gethsemane. Um, If you are a skeptic, or maybe you're here, you're just exploring Christianity, or a friend invited you, first off, thank you. Uh, That that shows tremendous, uh, we want to honor you. The fact that you took a step to come here, that is awesome. Can we hear for people who, you're not Christians yet, but you're like, I just want to examine this? That's totally fine. And you may have hard questions. You may be like, well, I don't read the Bible because it has all these, like, myths and legends. How do we know this even really happened, right? A lot of skeptics say that. History is written by the winners. How do we know? Don't the Gospels, the Gospels mean they're eyewitness accounts. But how do we know they're not full of legendary material? How do we even know Gethsemane is a real place? Well, the first answer is you can actually visit it today. Um, This is the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem that is located on the Mount of Olives. And as you can see, it is a garden lined with these kind of gnarled old olive trees, some of them 2,000 years old. In other words, when Jesus was there praying, they're only saplings, okay? And Gethsemane literally means oil press. It is a place where olives are harvested, pressed, and crushed into oil, which is fitting. Because this is where the crushing of Christ begins. And the pressure and stresses that Jesus endures here are going to lead him from Gethsemane to another hill called Golgotha, less than 12 hours away. And if you flew to Israel today, if you visit the Holy Land, you can visit Gethsemane and Golgotha. And we know that Gethsemane was Jesus' special place of prayer. He actually went there often to pray, the scriptures said. In Luke's eyewitness account, he says, they went to Gethsemane as was his custom. In other words, it's one of the reasons Judas knew where to find Jesus. This was the place where the Son of God would go to actually withdraw and spend time talking to his Father in heaven, outside the city, away from the crowds. If you're ever into like New York or Manhattan, it's sometimes overwhelming, especially around the holidays, right? It's like wall-to-wall people, and you, can, you take a step way into where? The gardens. You go to Central Park, right? But the question you again have is, you know, how do we still know this is true? 
Maybe this is just a myth or a legend made up by Jesus' followers. Here's the deal. Again, put Christian bias aside. Modern scholars unanimously agree that this account in Mark 14 is unique among all ancient literature. They say Mark 14 is absolutely authentic for one reason. It paints Jesus in an unflattering light. Look at the text. Jesus is seen here as weak. Jesus is agonizing. Jesus is is pleading with God, saying, Father, get me out of this. (laughs) He's actually kind of blubbering. He's like, if there's any way you can take this cup from me. And secular scholars note, this is so different from ancient literature at the time. Because in the first century, Greek and Roman heroes, they were always depicted staring down death bravely and defiantly, fearless to the end. And so secular scholars, they say, hey, just use reason. If you were starting a religion, a brand new religion, and you want to get people to recognize and worship your hero as the all-powerful God of the universe, you would never include an account like Gethsemane with such unflattering details, unless it were true. See, Gethsemane is not a place of legend or myth. It is a place of history where we see Jesus' humanity up close. Point number two, the humanity of Christ. Verse 33 says this, Jesus began to be, what's it say? Deeply distressed and troubled. And this is where you see Jesus' humanity, right? Jesus was 100% God, but also 100% human. God becomes flesh, and Jesus is deeply distressed. In other words, there's this time of great emotional turmoil. He's very upset. In fact, the Greek word for troubled is overcome with horror. Anybody here watch horror movies? Or you, you like watch The Walking Dead or something like that, okay? Now, yeah, oh, yeah, well, that's okay. I'm judging you just a little bit, all right? Just a, <laughs> I, I can't do it. Whenever I see like, you know, one of those trailers for like a horror flick, I, like, I, it's deeply distressing to me and I change the channel. Why? Because if you watch like horror movies, even the trailers, they may not even show the blood. But they get this sense that there is this sinister spirit of evil out there, and there's about to be this grisly death. And you're like, oh, I like have to change the channel. It's upsetting to me because, because there's a sense that there's a bloody, like, you know, uh, death uh, on the horizon. That's what Jesus is staring into. In the garden, he has this sense that he is about to face the bloodiest, grisliest death in history. And, of course, he has in mind, he told his disciples what's going to happen. They are going to uh, strip me of my clothes. They're going to pull the beard out of my chin. They're going to spit on me, and then they're going to flog me. You know what a flogging is? It's where the Roman officers would use a cat of tails, and at the end of the tails were shards of bone and metal. And you give them 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes that would fillet the flesh on the back of the victim. And Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Sort of strange to think of God as overwhelmed, isn't it? In fact, Jesus is so overwhelmed, he actually says, I, I, I feel like dying. I could die. Again, this is the guy whose claim is to be divine. And in Gethsemane, we see him responding this very human way. He's struggling with grief. He's recoiling in horror from this path to the cross that's laid before him. And this is one of the ways you know the Gospels are true. There's historical accuracy. Jesus' reaction is so different from the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, where the gods, the Roman gods, are impervious to pain. They're fearless. They're unflinching superheroes, right? But the Christian God is a God who can be wounded. He's a God who is vulnerable. Christ experiences human weakness. And this sets him apart, Jesus, from every other major religion. 
Every other major religion has as its center a God who demands his followers be like him. You better be strong. You better be devout. You better be resolute and perfect in obedience, and then I'll love you. Whereas the God of Christianity says, no, 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 other way around. I love you, so I'll become like you. Weak, suffering, overwhelmed at times. Can I ask, have you ever felt overwhelmed? Have you ever gone through something where you feel like your family and friends aren't there for you? In your moment of need, they bail on you? Have you ever had, uh, uh, gone through something where you have a difficult time understanding a painful situation? Even more, submitting to the will of God for your life. You thought it was going to go this way, and it goes this way, and like, I have a hard time accepting that. In a sense, you have experienced just a taste of what Jesus is going through here in Gethsemane. Because the truth is, Christians, newsflash, are not immune from suffering, pain, rejection, and death. As believers, we will all go through very personal Gethsemanes in our life. In fact, you may be here today, and you're going, you, you did, it took everything to get here because you're going through something right now where life is not making sense. Your problems feel like they're too great to bear. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Nobody's there for you. And you feel like, I, I, can't, I can't go on one more day. I had that this week in a pastoral call. Earlier this week, I got a phone call with a, a liquid congregant from one of our campuses who I would say unexpectedly entered his own Gethsemane through no fault of his own. Uh, he was on vacation in Florida, experienced some, some chest pains, which was strange. He said to me, he said, I've been in great health for 60 years, never missed a day of work, didn't have to, never had to really go to the doctor. And he goes, and I go in uh, in Florida, and I didn't know any of the doctors for testing, and he's told this bacterial infection has migrated to his heart. He says, I now have to have open chest surgery on Friday. And it was overwhelming. He goes, I'm, Tim, I'm here all, I'm in the hospital, I'm away from home, I don't know anybody. And out of nowhere, I have to have open heart surgery. And he said, he said, I'm overwhelmed. He said, I just can't believe it. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. In a sense, my friend is going through a very personal Gethsemane. Guys, if you go, if you go through a personal Gethsemane, if you're in one today, this is a moment where you must learn how to say something very important to God. And it's the same thing that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Not my will, but what? Yours be done. That's a prayer of surrender. Jesus' decision to surrender his will, what he wanted in life, and accept what God wanted, is at the core of his sacrifice in Gethsemane. Again, Jesus at any moment can walk. He has a choice. He can say, this is too much. He can walk away. He says, I can call down angels. I can call up my followers. And you may look at his prayer of surrender and say, no way, I could never pray that. (laughs) I'm too weak. That's okay. Because before Jesus gets to this place of surrender, he just shows his humanity, and he actually asks God, what's his prayer? Let me off the hook. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if it's possible that the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. What's it say? Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will. And this is key to understanding what happens here in Gethsemane. Take this cup from me. Cup. What cup? What cup is Jesus talking about here? Understand something. In the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is always a symbol for the wrath of God poured out on human evil. The cup is a symbol, of, a symbol meaning it represents divine justice poured out on injustice. I'll spare you the time. I'll just give you a couple examples, but you look at this in your life groups. If you actually read the Old Testament, you're going to see this over and over again. Isaiah 51 says this, O Jerusalem, you have drunk 
from the hand of the Lord, the what? Say this together. The cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. You guys know what dregs are? Any of you who are wine connoisseurs here, uh, you know when you drink when you drink uh, wine, sometimes in the bottom there's a little bit of sediment. It's kind of nasty stuff at the bottom. That's what the dregs are. In this image of the cup of the wrath of God being poured out to the very sediment, it sets the person who is the object of wrath just staggering. Again, Jeremiah 25 says, Thus the Lord your God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this what? Cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So the cup in the Bible always represents the wrath of God being stored up to pour out on human evil and injustice. In other words, God is holy and without sin. He says, I'm storing up judgment for the earth that is full of sin. And here in Gethsemane, Jesus looks in the cup and he says, I don't want it. I don't want to drink it. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't that weird? Christianity has all these accounts of martyrs down through the ages, people who have died for their faith, martyrs who have been you know, thrown to the lions, burned at the stake, put to the sword, and almost all of them face death more calmly than Jesus does here. Isn't that strange? Have you ever asked that question? Why do the followers of Jesus sometimes seem to die better than Jesus? Take Nicholas Ridley and uh, Hugh Latimer. They were burned at the stake uh, for their faith in 1555 in Oxford, England. And they were tied side by side. And when the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light as such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And that became this kind of rallying cry for the Reformation. So many of the Christians down through the ages have died nobly, calm, brave, resolute, and defiant in the face of suffering and death we can't imagine. But here in the garden, (laughs) Jesus, he's not calm. He's not at peace. He's not defiant to the end. He can hardly handle what's in the cup. He's agonizing. He's, He's struggling. He's deeply distressed. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. Why do the followers of Jesus through the ages often die better than Jesus? The only answer is this. In the cup, Jesus was facing something infinitely worse than any other martyr has ever faced. In the cup, Jesus sees something far worse than physical pain. Jesus is not going, oh, I'm going to the cross. Oh, no, the nails. Oh, no, the crown of thorns. He's peering into the cup, and he sees something so devastating that physical pain and torment were like flea bites by comparison, according to Tim Keller. And so he pleads with his father. He says, let me off the hook. Abba, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink what's inside. What's inside when he looks? The wrath of God poured out on human sin. The horror of hell opens before Jesus. I want you to think about this. All his life, Jesus has gone to this garden. And the son has perfect fellowship with the father. There's a perfect relationship in the Trinity. What's he call him? Abba. Abba is Aramaic for Papa or Daddy. And every time he prays, there's this love and there's intimacy and there's this affection and trust. In all his life, whenever Jesus kneeled and prayed to his Abba, what happened? Heaven opened up before him. But in Gethsemane, for the first time in his life, Jesus prays to the Father and what? Hell opens up. The cup, the horror of the cup. He sees nothing but the wrath of God stored up for human evil. He looks into the cup and he sees all the ugliness of human sin, all the lust, all the lying, all the adultery, all the pride, the anger, the rage, the greed, the envy, the jealousy, all of it, he looks in and he recoils. 
because of this moment, your Savior Christ begins to experience the spiritual darkness, the separation from the holy God caused by human sin. So Christ looks into the cup and he sees the horror, horror of hell. What is hell? Eternal separation from God, the source of life. And that's something that fire and flames can't compare to. And so he staggers because he realizes his assignment. On the cross, I am going to absorb the full wrath of God in your place. Now, if I can pause here and call a timeout, because I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking that's the problem with Christianity right here. I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. <laughs> it seems like so purity, like, oh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I want a God of love. How many of you have thought that, right? That's the problem with, you know, religion. Why can't God just love people and forgive them? Why does he have to be angry? Listen, listen. People who say that, you have not thought critically about the issues facing our world. I think we are very all aware that evil is alive and well in many forms in our world, right? Mass shootings, human trafficking, ISIS raping women, beheading believers. There's racism, injustice in our cities, the greedy trample the poor. Be honest. Just be honest for a minute. Do you really want a God who ignores all that? A God who just ignores ISIS, shooters, rapists, a God who just lets slavery and slaughter go unpunished? I don't think so. Instinctively, you say, you watch the news and you get angry, don't you? You're like, injustice makes me angry. That is what is fueling our election cycle right now, right? The electorate is angry. They're voting with their middle finger right now, right? Listen, can I suggest, if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God because loving people get angry. People who love their neighbors in the Middle East get angry at ISIS. If you love women and children, you get angry when you hear how they're enslaved and denied education in other parts of the world. If you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God because loving people get angry. I mean, take it from the global to the personal perspective. Have you ever noticed this in your life? The more you love someone, the angrier you get when sinful behavior hurts them, right? If you're a parent, right, and you have a son or a daughter, and they start, like, you know, destroying themselves through drug abuse or drinking or something. What do parents do? What's their reaction? They get angry because they love their child. If a man damages his, his, his marriage through having an affair, his wife gets angry. Why? Not because she doesn't care. See, the opposite of love isn't anger. It's apathy. Anger means you care deeply. The more loving you are, the more angry you get when sin hurts the people you love. And again, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you will never know the depths of God's love for you. A God without wrath doesn't need the cross. He doesn't need to pay for your sin. He just loves you. A God without wrath doesn't have to go through this incredible agony and sacrifice something dear to save you. But in Gethsemane, we see a God who says, I'm going to pay everything to prove my love for you. We sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know Jesus loves me? He drank the cup for you. Jesus says, I'm going to drain this thing to the dregs to the very bottom. And on the cross, Christ took the full weight of human sin. Tim's sin, your sin, the world's sin. And he suffered and he died in our place as your substitute. What is, what is a substitute? A substitute just means someone does something for you that you could never do yourself. If you're, if you're not a Christian, that's fine. I just say, so what's your plan of salvation at the end of the day? What, what's your plan? Everybody has a plan. This is God's plan. He says, on the cross, my son is going to absorb the wrath of the Father poured out on human evil. And that reveals his love. 
See, this is the hope. This is the hope. Jesus drains the cup, and now the cup is empty. What does an empty cup mean? No more wrath for you. An empty cup means judgment of God, done. Because Jesus drank the cup for you, it means no hell awaiting you. This is good news. This is how we know Jesus loves you. The only man who never sinned says, give me the cup. I don't deserve this, but I'm going to drink it for you. Because in the garden, I have you in mind. This is, he has you in mind when he says, Abba, Father, everything's possible. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And guys, his prayer of surrender leads us to the hope of Gethsemane. If you can take this truth into your heart, that God is not angry. He's not angry with you. In fact, the son has suffered in your place. It will change your response to suffering. It will transform the way you interact with the world. Because when you go through your own personal Gethsemane, you can actually have hope even when you feel crushed. Even when you're pressed and you're, you're stressed. Why? Let me ask you this. When Jesus looked into this cup, what do you think this reminded him of? Flip back one chapter. What is he doing three hours earlier? It reminds him of another cup. See, before he walked his disciples to Gethsemane, he gathered them together in the upper room to celebrate the Passover, where the cup filled with the sacrificial blood of the lamb. Here's what it says. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then watch it. Say it out loud. Ready? Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, even you, Judas. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. Jesus takes the cup of Passover, and he transforms it into the cup of communion that we take today as Christians. What is in this cup? This cup's filled with the wrath of God. This cup's filled with the blood of Christ, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. See, when there's sin, when something damages a relationship, something must die, and blood represents life. And the cup is a symbol of God's love and his mercy in your time of need. Because Christ died on the cross, guess what? Good news for you. This isn't filled with wrath and judgment. You get to taste the grace and the fellowship, the sweet fellowship with God your Father who came to this earth. This is his plan of salvation for you. What is your plan of salvation? Can I ask that? Instead of eternal separation, God says, I'm going to give you the cup of salvation, and you're going to receive eternal life with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see this? Isn't there beauty? There's a symmetry in the garden. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, you get the cup of his friendship. Because Jesus drank the horrors of hell, you get the hope of heaven. Guys, this is the source of Christian hope. You have the promise of eternal life through the blood of Christ. On the cross, God's like, I just want to make sure everyone sees it. There's a way for every man and woman on earth, no matter what you've done, no matter how, where you've been, how bad things have gotten, you can come into a life-giving relationship with me through faith in Jesus. That is tremendous hope. Let me tell you something. After the last service, this is just spontaneous to tell you. A woman came up to me with tears in her eyes because she said, my husband was here today, and he is a soldier, and he is struggling with PTSD because he has seen things, and he says he has done things. That he says, there may be no forgiveness for me. And when you said, the cup is empty, there's no judgment for you. She goes, this is like a bomb went off in our hearts. This idea that no matter what I've done, the greater the sin, you can never be greater than the mercy of God, than the grace of God.
Think about that. If you're not a follower of Christ, I have no condemnation for you. But I will ask you, just what's your plan of salvation? Because if you say, I don't need a savior, guess what? This broken world is as close to heaven as you will ever experience. This broken world full of war, poverty, famine, disappointment, this is as good as it gets. It only goes downhill from here, all the way to death, judgment, and hell. But if you receive the cup of Christ, think about this as believers. This world is as close to hell as you'll ever taste. Right now, this is the most difficulty, pain, the suffering you will ever experience. From here, life only gets better. Christians have the hope of heaven and this eternity spent in a paradise of perfection, reunited with the Father, full of God's love and his joy and his beauty and his light. And as a follower of Jesus, guys, you have so much to look forward to. And that transforms then how you live on earth. Because you just understand, I may suffer physically and emotionally during certain seasons on this planet, but my troubles, they're light and momentary compared to the glory that's waiting for me. All because of two cups. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath, you get the cup of God's friendship. You have the guarantee you will never be alone in your moment of need. Whatever you are going through, Jesus is here to help you. God loves you. Want proof? Drink the cup. In fact, right now, at all of our campuses, our ushers are coming forward, and we are going to give you your very own communion cup. It's not a cup like this. We have a special one for you today. It's a mini cup. I call these little K-cups. Anyone have a Keurig machine? Hazelnut communion. No. Just take one and pass it down, okay? Just take one and pass it down. Don't open it yet. This is a single-serve communion cup. Take one, pass it down your row, and you'll see on the top, there's a little wafer on top. That's the symbol of Christ's body broken for you. There's grape juice in the cup. That represents the blood of Christ shed for your sins. On the cross... What does Jesus do? He takes our sins, and then you get his righteousness. You know what that's called? It's called justification. Fancy word. <laughs> you guys ever do word processing and you justify? It means like things are jagged. You hit the justification. Now everything's made right. That's what justification is. When you receive the blood of Jesus, it means God now sees you just as if you never sinned. You're forgiven. And then he credits Christ's perfection to you. He treats you just as if you always obeyed. It keeps you humble because you do nothing. Christ says it's done. That's the power, guys, of, of hope we have. That no matter what you've done, where you've been, you can be made right with God through this, the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what it represents, friendship with God. So before we receive this communion together, don't take it just yet, I want to give you a chance to pray the way Jesus prayed in the garden, and that is a prayer of surrender. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ, but this is a moment of decision. You realize you don't have a plan for salvation, <laughs> Maybe you're like, I've done too much. You have no peace or assurance that your sins are forgiven. Your debts are paid. There is no fear. There is no guilt left. And this is a moment you actually surrender your life to Christ. I can lead you in a prayer in just a few minutes. I want you to be thinking about that. Or maybe you are a Christ follower and you came today and you're like, I'm in Gethsemane. I am pressed. Remember, Gethsemane means olive press. And Jesus was pressed from every side. And he says, I can offer you strength in your time of need. Maybe you're at this crisis moment in your life right now, personal Gethsemane, if you will, and you have your will. You know how you would like things to go, what you want. But you sense that God's will may be different. Here's my challenge to you. Would you trust your Father to choose for you? Would you be willing to pray, 
Abba, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Surrender your situation, whatever it is. Ask God right now for the strength to endure. He has promised to use whatever. He doesn't never waste pain. He never wastes pain. <laughs> whatever you're going through, he will use for your good and his glory. And you will never regret that decision. So let's take a moment right now just for silent prayer. Would you bow your head? All our campuses, we're going to bow our heads. Quiet your heart just to do business with God. And then we'll come together to take communion in just a moment. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus, the Son. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice in the garden. Jesus, thank you that you would take the cup of wrath and drink it to the dregs. And now you offer us this cup of salvation. We're holding this in our hands. This is your plan of salvation. Thank you for the sacrifice on the cross. We know you are a God of unending love. Again, if you're here, all our heads are bowed, and you're like, I have never personally spoken to God. I've never had the assurance that he loves and accepts me and that there's not judgment waiting for me. This is a moment for you. Surrender your life to him. It's very simple. <laughs> the gospel is simple for us because it was so hard for Jesus. He drank death so you could have life. What would that prayer be like? Here's what it would be like. And I'm going to say these words out loud. You can pray them in your heart. This is a prayer of salvation. Simply saying, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. And I need a savior. I believe in your death for me. And your resurrection so that I could live for you. Come into my heart. Forgive me. Cleanse me. I'll commit to follow you all of my days. Father God, I thank you for people who are, are taking a step even now and have the courage to pray those words. Would you let them now know without a shadow of a doubt they're adopted into your family through faith. We thank you, God, for that. And Father, I pray right now for believers who are going through a Gethsemane. Would you let them know through the Holy Spirit that they're not alone and that you are right alongside them now to feed them. Strengthen them, God. Give them a palpable sense of your presence and peace in this moment of hardship. Lord, you were pressed and stressed. Jesus, you were crushed. And in hope, we now take strength and find you willing in our hour of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to ask everybody, we're going to open our communion cup together. And here's how you do it. There's a little skin of plastic on top. That's the first thing you rip off. When you open that up, you'll see the wafer that represents Christ's body. After you have that open, then you can take the foil off the cup, which gives you access to the juice. Just kind of put that in your pocket. And we're going to partake of these elements together. So would you stand up with me right now? Stand up with me. If you're not a believer and you're like, I, I don't know I should do this, just take it with you. It'll be a reminder for you of what Christ did, what we believe as Christians, and you keep on your journey. You keep coming. That's awesome. But we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together, a prayer that was modeled in the garden. So would you pray with me? We're going to say this out loud together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, you can eat the bread and drink the cup. Drink it down. Drink it so that your cup is empty. Got an empty cup? Here's what I want you to do. You're going to take this home with you. This is a reminder this week. Guess what? Ain't no judgment left for you. You have no fear. The Father loves you. Christ drained it for you. He drank it to the dregs. And now you get the cup of God's friendship and eternal life. Strengthen your moment of need. Amen? The cup is empty. So you take that with you. And as you carry your cross this week, know that God goes along with you and Christ leads the way. We're going to stand and now sing our final song, Jesus Messiah. Big loud voice as we worship our risen King. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.